From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for welcoming me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, your camper, your taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations. We're up to about, oh, three dozen, I think, across the United States. Those of you who are uh, listening to the podcast at TalkZone.com, those of you who take the show wherever you go on your mobile device with our app, the Conspiracy Show app, and those of you who check us out on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, if you haven't already, please take a moment and subscribe. Uh, to the YouTube channel. We've set a very modest goal of 10,000 subscriptions sometime in 2017. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with more than 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias, last time I checked anyway, reference works. Her work is translated into 15 languages, her current work focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences, problem haunting, spirit and entity attachments, the afterlife, spirit communication. Uh, and uh, check out, here's uh, some of the, um, the her works. The Encyclopedia of Dreams, Symbols and Interpretations. Encyclopedia of the Strange, Mystical and Unexplained. Uh, Soul Journeys, Past Lives and Reincarnation. The Vengeful Jinn, The Jinn Connection, Dream Messages from the Afterlife. The Encyclopedia of Angels, The Zozo Phenomenon, Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. Wow. And her website, VisionaryLiving.com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome back. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I've been getting a lot of work done in this cold weather. I'm getting kind of tired of that, but it's enabled me to get a lot of writing done. I have a new book coming out this summer on paranormal travel tales. And it's a collection of weird things that happen to people just when they go on vacation or take a trip. Ah, well, that's a rich uh, mind to be ve- or a rich vein to be mined for sure. Well, speaking of traveling and paranormal activity, um, this happened recently, uh, this past month, in fact. And this was a uh, they're calling it the ghost plane crash, and it's uh, regarded as one of the weirdest mysteries of of 2017. Well, it certainly is strange, but it does fit a paranormal uh, kind of phenomenon here. And this concerns a rented plane, a Cessna 172. A a student uh, rented it in Michigan, intending to fly from Ann Arbor, Michigan, to Harbor Springs, Michigan, which is, um, oh, depending upon the ground uh, route you would take, about 260 to 280 miles. So, you know, not that far. And somehow this plane just overshoots Harbor Spring, um, Michigan, which is right at the tip of the Upper Peninsula, crosses the lake water and lands in Canada. Yeah, Lake Superior, that's a big lake. And not the time of year to be crossing a huge body of water like that, you know, if you're not intending to do so. And when the uh, authorities get to the crash site, uh, there's nobody in the plane, no body. And what's even more puzzling, there's no footprints, like somebody getting out of the plane. And so the speculation is, well, what happened? Did, did this guy bail out of the plane? Did he bail out over Lake Superior? What's going on? And, and um, so far he's turned up missing. So it, it's possible then that the plane the, at, at some point was switched onto autopilot and then it just ran out of fuel. 
and uh, and crashed in uh, it was Marathon, Ontario, uh, on uh, on the north shore of Lake Superior. So that's the theory, perhaps, that it was on autopilot. It could have been, and let's say that um, this was somebody who maybe wanted to disappear. Uh, and so he maybe he didn't parachute out over the lake uh, because he wouldn't survive, but maybe he did on land somewhere. Uh, let's say he bailed out of the plane and put it on autopilot and let it go on its way while uh, he went off and um, hopefully got to ground and then managed to disappear. But that's a really extraordinary scenario and and very unlikely. Now, there are people who do like to disappear, Mm-hmm. Um, this was a student, so we have to ask, you know, is this some sort of weird prank? And, and he's going to show up in a couple of weeks and, um, you know, yank everybody's chain about it. But the other thing that we have to consider is, is this one of those bizarre cases where people seem to go into an interdimensional doorway and they don't come back? And uh, we have these zones all over the planet, like the Bermuda Triangle, there are places in Alaska State, for example, that are known for planes that disappear and they're never found. And of course, the skeptics say, well, you know, a plane could go down in water, it could go down in very rough territory, and, and of course it would be very hard to find, but it doesn't mean that something paranormal happened. But we have all of these cases on record where there have been mysterious disappearances that can't be explained. Now, it would, it would be easier if the whole plane had disappeared, right. the pilot and the plane. But here we have a plane without the pilot. Right. And so now we have a missing persons case. Uh, and, so um, did aliens abduct him out hmm. of the plane? You know, I'm sure that there are ufologists who have put that idea forward that uh, maybe the aliens took him in mid-flight. Uh, when, when you get into some of these weird um, possible explanations, you know, actually nothing's out of the range of possibility. But it's a very strange case. Right. And if, in fact, he bailed out over Lake Superior, then obviously the story will have a very sad ending, particularly this time of year. I mean, Lake Superior is cold all year long. wouldn't have survived very long. Oh, no, minutes, I would think, uh, before the hypothermia would set in at a fatal level. And if he did, say, parachute out over land, uh, well, I know it's kind of a wilderness up there, but you would think that maybe somebody would see him or there might be something registering on radar somewhere. It's just very strange that he could just disappear completely. Right. I mean, you would have thought that someone would have noticed that he was deviating from his flight plan. You have to submit a flight plan before you take off. That's Uh, right. Yeah, very unusual. All right, well, we'll have to watch this one with interest to see if there's a, a resolution one way or the other. Um, I, you know, I love these stories uh, of um, small children, and we hear about them now, it seems, with more frequency, who seem to remember a past life. Now, this case is particularly near and dear to my heart because I am a huge baseball fan, and we have this, in this case, he's a two-year-old boy, just as cute as all get out, a Christian Haupt. And um, uh, he seems to recall his his past life as none other than Lou Gehrig, great first baseman with the New York Yankees. This is uh, a yet another amazing case of spontaneous past life recall, and there are actually so many of them on record now, just really astounding cases of children who start 
at a very young age talking about a previous life. And what makes this even more interesting is uh, he's saying that he was a famous personality. Uh, many times uh, the individuals were not historically um, famous, and uh, yet in some cases they could they could be tracked through uh, through historical documents and records. And the, the scenario that happens is that uh, somewhere around age two to three, um, a child just begins spontaneously talking, and sometimes in a very mature way, far beyond uh, their um, ability, you know, normal child abilities to talk, about uh, their previous personality. And they'll make references to their parents and um, where they lived and what they did. They might have extraordinary fascinations with things like this child Christian uh, is uh, just absolutely uh, fascinated and obsessed by baseball. And uh, it builds to a point where the parents can't ignore it anymore. Now, in some other cultures, it wouldn't be ignored to begin with. Uh, it would be um, uh, paid attention to and maybe even encouraged, uh, places where beliefs in reincarnation are strong. In our culture, there's usually a lot of resistance from the adults, and they pass it off to child imagination and, oh, uh, he or she will grow out of it. And it gets to a point where it becomes so unsettling that they start looking into it. And um, then it gets even um, more interesting when documentation can be done. Now, in this case, with Christian, uh, he uh, knew a lot about Lou Gehrig's relationships with other players, like his uh, uh, feud with Babe Ruth. Uh, he could name trains and travel routes and things that the team took. He knew a lot of details that a two-year-old or young child would uh, would have no way of knowing. And furthermore, uh, he announced to his mother that she was Lou Gehrig's mother, like they had both reincarnated together. Interesting. So she goes off to uh, a hypnosis regression session and gives details about... Um, Mrs. Gehrig, that proved to be accurate. So that deepens the mystery even more. But there are other cases like this uh, from America and around the world that are absolutely astounding. And when you read them, you can't help but say, well, if this doesn't prove reincarnation, what could? But scientifically, of course, um, the explanation is they don't. They're just evidence in support of reincarnation. Well, there was an interesting bit of evidence after one of these regressions and young Christian talks about jewelry that Lou Gehrig had given her that she gave away to a family. Now was this a mother that was under regression or was it Christian at this point? It was the mother the that mother. was under regression right. and she, she talked about this and it proved to be true. That, that uh, Lou Gehrig had in fact given away some jewelry that, that I guess he purchased in Japan. It was a watch or something? Um, it was his mother was the one who gave it away, and it was uh, women's jewelry that uh, had come from Japan, including a watch. And not only was this verified as accurate, but um, he, the the family who uh, who were still in possession uh, of of these items was identified and verified that these pieces did indeed come from the Gehrig family. So it's a very, very compelling case, and um, I understand it's a subject of a book coming out uh, soon, uh, The Boy Who Saw Too Much or Knew Too Much. Uh, Jim B. Tucker, who's at the University right. of Virginia, 
who does um, many of these cases now. He's sort of taken on the mantle uh, left by Dr. Ian Stevenson, who um, was one of the leading figures of uh, past life recall research, including of children. And Tucker has a lot of cases like this that are just extremely compelling. Just recently I was uh, reading another one where a a three-year-old child had started talking about, it turned out he was a pilot in World War II and shot shot down and killed over Iwo Jima. Yes, he knew everything. He even named the aircraft carrier that the plane took off from. And this this is a little boy, what, three, four years old. It's a remarkable case as well. One day we'll do an entire show on past lives. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Her website, visionaryliving.com, back with more of our Paranormal News Roundup right after this. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She's with us for the full hour. And uh, after the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk about uh, orbs. I was uh, looking back over some uh, family vacation photos. Now, I had remembered this photograph. It was uh, taken of the... uh, um, of me and my two boys, we were in a cave in um, in Greece, in uh, near Kalamata, and uh, I was surrounded by what looked like these little soap bubbles. Now, this uh, cave had significance uh, to my wife's side of the family. This was a, uh, a cave or a spilia, as they say in Greek, that her mother's family had hidden in during the Second World War. They went up into the mountains and hid in this cave from the Nazi occupiers. So I posed for a picture with my little guys in the cave and surrounded by these uh, orbs. It was quite remarkable. We'll get into that a little bit later. Right now, I want to talk about this story. I've not heard about this. It's been regarded as perhaps the most haunted item you'll ever come across. It's called, is it a Dybuk box or a Dybbuk box? Tell me about it, Rosemary. It's a Dybbuk box. And this whole scenario is, in my view, a big problem because it's basically urban legend in the making that's going to take hold and become a truism. The current attention is a very popular show, Paranormal Lockdown, going to a a mansion in Joliet, Illinois, and supposedly there's this box there called the Dybbuk box that contains an evil spirit and nobody should touch it or open it, and that there are other such boxes around and they are problematic as well. These are a lot of half-truths and untruths that now have become a paranormal truth. And I think we're going to be seeing more of this when, in fact, it has no basis in fact, really, All right. well, this, this whole item. What is a Dybbuk box? Well, a, a Dybbuk, in, in Jewish mythology, a, a, there are two definitions of a Dybbuk, and one is that it's a lost soul, someone who, uh, due to things that he did during life, doesn't make it to the good afterlife or the bad afterlife, kind of wanders around in a purgatory. And they jump into the bodies of people, especially people who are ill and vulnerable, and, and take possession of them and cause a lot of problems. And another definition of it is that it is an evil spirit who does the same thing. And technically, there's no such thing as a Dybbuk box. And this all started well over a decade ago when there was a wine cabinet that was sold as a haunted object on eBay the story behind it was largely a phony story that it came over from the old country and contained a trapped Dybbuk spirit in it. And whoever possessed this box 
started having problems, illness, accidents, bad feelings, nightmares, shadow people, things like that. And so this uh, box, um, which was an old wine cabinet, had some prayer stones in it and, and some other items, um, passed through several hands, and the, the story grew um, as it went and um, wound up in the hands, finally, of a man named Jason Haxon, who devoted a great deal of research into determining whether or not the story was true and just what was going on. And he wrote a book about it, and both John Zaffis and I were involved with him uh, for short periods in his research. Uh, Jason did uh, talk to me about doing the book with him, and I couldn't take it on. Uh, But I did a lot of research on his case. And um, he determined that the story, the eBay story, was largely false, and it was done uh, for a profit, Mm -hmm. uh, because haunted items sell. Sure. and so that part of the story was false. And there's an afterword in his book by uh, a Jewish uh, theologian who says, you know, technically there's no such thing as a dibbit box. Uh, you know, these spirits are not put in boxes. Um, and yet there was something about this box. He said, well, whatever it is, even though the story w- was not genuine, there's something about this box that is, and it has some sort of, uh, magnetic power, and there was some sort of connection he felt with the Holocaust. And it was uh, this energy that had this profound effect on people. Well, I did agree with him about the effect on it, because um, another researcher that um, I knew, Jason Offit, had also been involved in uh, researching this. And as soon as Jason Haxton got us involved, we both started experiencing unusual phenomena in our homes. Ah. Uh, and for Jason, uh, it was a lot of unpleasant haunting phenomena, poltergeist stuff, shadow people. And he had a, a young um, child at the time, and so he was concerned about that and decided not to be involved. And uh, I started having, um, like, um, cat urine smells everywhere. I have no cats. My neighbor had no cats. I was not around any cats, and yet everything was permeated with this heavy smell of cat urine, wow. which other people had experienced as well. Who had, been in, who had been in contact with the Dybbuk box? Yes, with this box. Okay. So there was something about the box, but the, uh, the effect of it didn't seem to have anything to do with this backstory, which was not genuine. Well, Haxton, Jason Haxton uh, sold film rights to Samuel Ramey, and uh, the movie came out several years ago. Uh, it was originally called The Dybbuk Box, and then it was changed to some other title that was um, oh, more generic. And, of course, being Hollywood, you know, a, a lot of things were exaggerated. Sure. Um, but uh, it was about this evil spirit that supposedly was, was in this, what, what is now called The Dybbuk Box. So this now has become a truism uh, in the paranormal community, that uh, there are boxes uh, that hold uh, dibbocks and they're dangerous. And um, in uh, you mentioned uh, at the uh, top of the show one of the books that I've done recently, which was um, Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault. Right. And we, we have a chapter in there on, um, I call it Foul Things in Containers, um, a guy who gets, um, he's a picker, uh, and he gets, uh, you know, lockers and things that have been abandoned. 
And uh, one was a box that had wax seals on it, and uh, there seemed to be something. It was sealed for a reason. There seemed to be something uh, very unpleasant or evil inside of it. Uh, Not a Dybbuk per se, but um, we used that as a platform to talk about the Dybbuk box and the fact that um, it's, there's, there's really no such thing uh, historically or technically as a Dybbuk box. But as far as the paranormal community is concerned now, there is. And I think we're going to be seeing more of these cases. Ah, okay. So, the, as you say, the backstory uh, has proven to be uh, false, but it's still possible that the object itself has some entity clinging to it. There's something going on with that box. And uh, Jason Haxton doesn't own it anymore. Zach Bagans bought it. Uh, and uh, Zach has been, um, I, I understand, acquiring a lot of haunted objects. And so whether or not it will be used uh, as the basis for ghost adventure stories, uh, a story in the future, who knows. But the concept of, of this now has seems to have taken hold. It, it's kind of like... Um, Oh, uh, you know, false, uh, mysterious creatures and entities that start as urban legends, like Slender Man. Right, right. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, enough people believe in it, and, and it becomes true, and people are experiencing Slender Man all over the place. And uh, so now we're going to have, um, you know, evil dibbocks, I guess, coming out of boxes. <laughs> no doubt, <laughs> except now we know the true story. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our paranormal investigator, researcher, the author of over 60 books. And her website is visionaryliving.com. Well, one person that did exist, we know um, that he was real, and that was uh, the late Father Malachi Martin, who was an Irish Catholic priest from New York, or who lived in New York, and performed exorcisms. And I remember, many people remember, uh, some amazing interviews that Art Bell did with Malachi Martin. Uh, And uh, Martin died uh, under somewhat mysterious circumstances after a fall in, in, in his apartment. But now we're getting kind of an interesting backstory to what may have been behind his death. Tell us more. Uh, it is an interesting story, and uh, there may be something to it. that, that um, uh, This is told by a, um, a former CIA agent who uh, had helped Malachi Martin in his final years. He drove him around to some of his appointments. He was uh, basically an independent exorcist for hire at that point. He uh, asked the church to uh, relieve him of his orders, and uh, he became uh, an independent. And uh, Art Bell's interviews with him, by the way, are just astounding. Are, and yes. um, I'm very glad that I have a, a copy of those recordings. Very quickly, we but, should point out as well, Rosemary, that the Max von Sydow character in The Exorcist was supposedly based on Father Malachi Martin. That's true. And some people think the entire film was inspired by him, but it wasn't inspired by a real exorcism case. But that character, yes. Um, And bad things have happened to exorcists, uh, including exorcist priests, when they tangle with really evil spirits. Um, And um, this is well documented in the literature. So now the story comes out from uh, this uh, former CIA agent um, who said that uh, he drove Malachi Martin to an exorcism case in Connecticut. There was a four-year-old girl who was possessed. And when he got there, the demon that was in the child uh, supposedly uh, piped up and said, so you're Malachi Martin and you think you can help her? 
And um, it was after that, then, that he had a fall that resulted in a second stroke. Uh, he'd already had one, and uh, he died of, of his head trauma uh, at the age of 78. And according to um, this account, um, Malachi Martin had uh, confided in a friend that he felt invisible hands push him down the stairs. So it's a very plausible story. Um, there are many cases of victims and uh, exorcists and paranormal investigators um, being pushed, um, and especially pushed downstairs by uh, a very strong force. It's like a, a, an invisible force gives you, um, you know, a, a big uh, shove. Right. It seems that individuals who do tangle with certain levels of evil and, and malevolent spirits, they put themselves in danger, and they have accidents, their health is affected. It's not out of the realm of possibility that it was a, a direct result from his work as an exorcist. Have you ever felt as if you've been pushed or attacked by some sort of an entity? I've had scratches, leading scratches, but I've never been pushed. I did work on one case some years ago where uh, there was a, a horrible entity on property of a house, and people who tried to get rid of it had bad things happen to them or their friends or their family, uh, including one exorcist who, uh, on the day that he was supposed to come and, and do it, um, his um, mother uh, fell down some stairs and uh, broke her neck and died of her injuries. And people say, well, that's just a coincidence or happenstance. They're, they're not related. But when you start looking at um, other cases where similar things happen, they do fall into, into patterns. There was another case I did, too, where I had a paranormal team, and uh, every time that we went to do, like, an all-night investigation at this property where people were being very, very pestered, Somebody on my team, something would happen to them. Uh, they'd have a medical emergency or get sick or have some sort of accident, uh, something that prevented them from participating. Rosemary, i gotta, I got to stop you there. we got to head on into a break. When we can finish that story on the other side, and then I want to talk about orbs that show up in photographs. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, joins us once a month, and her website, visionaryliving.com. Uh, and the new book that you're working on uh, involving uh, paranormal and travel, when is that uh, out? It's going to be out in June, and it's a co-author project. Um, I'm working with a fellow who's known as the travel psychologist, Michael Brine, and he used to be uh, very prominent in ufology as well, world traveler. He has interviewed um, thousands of people on their weird travel tales, and so we've put together an anthology, and then I've uh, done the paranormal commentary on the stories. Ah, all right. Can't wait for that one. Uh, before the break, we were just finishing up. We were talking about Malachi Martin, Father Malachi Martin, who um, a CIA, former CIA agent, has come forward who helped Malachi Martin in his later years and says that um, 
Martin, Malachi Martin believed that he was uh, pushed uh, in his apartment, which led to um, his ultimate demise uh, in the 90s, and that he this happened after he performed an exorcism, and it's possible some evil entity was responsible for Father Martin's death. So you were talking about cases where you've been attacked by entities or members of your uh, paranormal research team have been attacked. It, it does happen, and so that's what makes this story uh, plausible. And I've also heard this from uh, other exorcists, in, including clergy, that um, you put yourself in a grave danger sometimes dealing with these cases. And um, um, people have had car accidents and serious injuries. And um, the, the question, however, I have is why is this coming out now? Why didn't it come out a long time ago? So um, I know that sometimes uh, people decide, you know, they wait a long time to come forward with things, but uh, one would think that this would be of of interest uh, concerning the death of somebody who was uh, so famous in the field. And so why now? Hmm. Well, it is interesting, the timing, as you say, uh, and particularly because... I believe it was the chief exorcist at the Vatican just came out and said, you know, we are in an emergency situation. We need more exorcists. There just aren't enough of them. Yes, uh, and they, the uh, Vatican and uh, leading exorcists around the world, they've been saying for a number of years now that the cases are dramatically on the rise. And uh, I think that more people are turning to faith as an avenue for combating this. Uh, some of it is, uh, I, I think, um, you know, people watch all these paranormal shows and then creepy movies, uh, and um, they start to think that they are possessed. Mm. But I also think that um, we've opened up a lot of doorways through our interests and through um, paranormal investigation that have provided opportunities for negative spirits to interfere more than they have in the past. I uh, We taped an episode on demonic possession. I think it was the second season, maybe the third season of my TV show. And I spoke on the phone with a Catholic priest in uh, New York um, who was would not be identified by name, who was involved in a fairly uh, high-profile case of demonic possession. He performed the exorcism. And uh, he warned me during the phone call. He said, we really need to say a prayer before we get into this discussion because even just talking about it on the phone with him, he said, you know, uh, there could be some um, retribution, I suppose. There could be some evil uh, entity that would try to attach itself to him and me during the conversation. So we went through this lengthy prayer process before we actually talked about the case. It sounds far-fetched to a lot of people, but it's not at all. And, uh, you know, he was right on target to say that. Um, what I've found, and this pertains a lot to my gin research, is that um, when you start poking around in these dark corners, um, the entities who are in those dark corners don't like it, and they will push back. And uh, sometimes if they... Uh, can't push back at you, they will hit the people around you, or sometimes they'll hit the people around you anyway, you know, like the drug lords, you know, we won't, we'll take out all your family, you know, if you displease us. Right. Uh, and I've seen those sorts of cases too, so people who deal with these cases have to have that in mind all the time, that the people around them 
can be in jeopardy just by having that connection because it's an energetic connection. Right, right. Uh, well, I tell you, I, I had um, I, I did not uh, feel. <laughs> I was nervous. Let's put it this way: I was nervous the whole time we were talking. I felt like there was a just a heaviness in the air as we were talking. Uh, but nothing further came of it, thank God. All right, uh, we're going to head into a break. When we come back, I want to talk about orbs, and particularly orbs, spirit orbs, some call them. Others say that some it's just some trick of the lens or the, or the flash of a camera uh, causing some sort of a, a retro-reflection off a solid, like maybe a dust particle or something. But the presence of these orbs in photographs, what are they exactly? How did they get there? What's behind them? We'll talk about that with Rosemary Allen Guiley on the other side when The Conspiracy Show continues. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back, heading on into the home stretch with our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the author of over 60 books. And her website, again, is visionaryliving.com. And you can check out the bookstore right there on the website. And uh, all of those titles are right there, visionaryliving.com. Uh, these orbs that appear on photos, I mentioned earlier that um, uh, I was in Greece in a cave with my two little guys, a very shallow cave. Uh, and my wife was taking the picture, and um, uh, this was a digital camera, so we saw it right away. And there were these, looked like so- soap bubbles of various sizes all over the place. Uh, and she thought immediately, or my mother-in-law did at the time, maybe that those were the um, the spirits of the, their ancestors, because they their ancestors used to hide in those caves in Greece during the Second World War. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on on these uh, orbs? I'm guessing you've seen thousands of photographs with orbs. Well, I have Richard, and I'm uh, very skeptical of most of them. I don't rule out the possibility that uh, at least some of them might be uh, an, an anomaly, something unknown, um, a spirit presence, or uh, something maybe directed by spirit presence, uh, because some of them seem to act with intelligence, but. The overwhelming majority of them, I believe, have natural explanations. And uh, when we're outdoors or even indoors, uh, any kind of activity can kick particulates into the air. And many of them are very fine. You're not going to see them with the naked eye. And they can remain suspended in the air for long periods of time, depending upon what they are. And uh, they will show up in digital photographs because a lot of them will be floating very close to the camera lens, and that's what makes them look like fuzzy blobs. Uh, When you get into places like the one you described of being in the cave, which has, uh, you know, some supernatural elements to it um, because of of, uh, how the cave was used, then the picture gets a little harder to um, uh, explain uh, because there may be that element of some spirit energy, uh, either residual energy or some sort of active presence that is capable of manifesting in that way. I'm, uh, I have seen orbs with my naked eye and uh, moving orbs that seem to act with volition and intention. And I think that that is a genuine anomaly uh, of something that we don't understand. Um, the ones that you don't see with your eyes that show up in the photographs um, 
I think it's harder to explain them in paranormal terms. Um, orbs have become like crop circles. If you doubt, you're hung. And uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I have had more people blow up at me uh, because I suggested to them that the dots in their photographs were probably just dust. It's really amazing how sensitive people are. It's true, but to me, it gives this whole... I mean, there are people that study this and books that have been written about it, uh, that if if you bring some skepticism uh, to it and say, well, no, these we can explain, this is a flash hitting a dust particle, or this is, this is something, this artifact was produced by the camera, there's something wrong with the camera, that gives more credence to the whole field, rather than just saying, yes, they're all spirits of dead relatives appearing in my photographs. Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, now, there was a book that came out some years ago um, on orbs that um, two Europeans had written, and they had uh, technical and scientific backgrounds. And it was a, a very well-researched book, and uh, I even did an article on it called Rethinking Orbs because they, they brought out some arguments that um, made the uh, spirit orb a lot more plausible. But... Uh, after I did some research on particulates uh, and um, how they could be, you know, suspended, you know, ambient in the air uh, and under what conditions, then uh, I really started swinging back in the other direction that we probably need to consider natural explanations first, which we always should sure. when it comes to uh, unusual phenomena. But it's the moving orbs. Uh, I think those are the ones that um, are the most interesting. Now, I've seen video clips of a lot of moving orbs, and some of them seem to, like, uh, know where the camera is, and they come right up to the camera. Um, Here again, uh, for example, I had a case in Arizona where a woman lived in a very active house, and um, she had a, a lot of things going on on her property, and she was clairvoyant and seemed to be a magnet herself and she would set up cameras in her house and photograph these what looked like to be moving orbs going around and so i thought well what is this like you know arizona dust blowing around in an air conditioner i Mm -hmm. you know but she said well she had no air conditioner she didn't have a fan going and um so and she could see these with the naked eye right um yes Okay. She said she saw them with a the naked eye, and uh, it. But the thing is that when I looked at the video clips, they they almost always came from the same direction, and that's why I thought there was some um, blowing force in the house that was maybe pushing. Uh, you know, Arizona is a very dusty state. Sure. Um, but um, it, it just wound up being very inconclusive, and I think a lot of these cases are. So that's interesting. If you can see them with the naked eye, then if they appear in a photograph, you should also see them while they're around you. That only stands to reason. Uh, and sometimes they're seen and not photographed. Uh, you know, people will see them and then they don't show oh. up in the photograph. And I think that that's even more evidential. It's like seeing the apparition of something and then not being able to capture a photographic image of it. Right. Um, they do show up in cases where people have very complex haunting and attachment situations going on. So uh, the orb, uh, and are they, as I described, they sort of resemble a, a, a soap bubble? They can, yes. And 
Um, some of them have colors to them. I think it's, uh, you know, in the case of natural explanation, I think it's just the way the light refracts uh, with the camera. But people have come up with these um, identification systems where if it's pink, it's, you know, your mother. Or if it's blue, it's, you know, a male relative. You know, it's just crazy. Um, because I, I think that um, these are probably natural conditions. And some of them uh, look very large, and you can see things behind them. You know, it's like they're uh, translucent. Uh, so they're not completely um, blotting things out. Now, whether that's, again, another effect from a dust particle floating very close uh, to a camera lens and being sort of exploded in size. Right. Uh, that might be the case. Some of the more interesting ones, and I've seen these in caves too, like we have some haunted um, stone chambers uh, in uh, upstate New York, and I've done a lot of, of investigating in them, and uh, people get a lot of orb photographs in them, and I've seen some where the orb is like c- cut in half, like it's like rising up out of the ground. Hmm. And that's an interesting phenomenon, because if it's a particulate floating in the air, why would you get... Uh, something that looked like it had been sawed in half. Right, right. That is just not a shape that you find <laughs> generally in nature, particularly if it's floating. Um, let's uh, let's leave then the orbs out of, from the photographs in the photographs aside for a moment, because you said you've seen orbs floating with your naked eye, uh, and if these are in fact um, uh, spirits, why would they assume that particular form? Well. Um, it- I don't think there's a known answer for that question. And uh, we have mystery lights that have been reported in folklore throughout the ages. And, uh, you know, the will-o'-the-wisp and um, bobbing lights that lead travelers astray. And sometimes there are natural explanations um, put forth for them. Uh, Corpse candles is another term from England. Um, And they're invariably round lights that bob around uh, in you know, usually outside is where people would see them. And uh, I've seen them in cases like when I've um, investigated properties that uh, have a lot of activity going on them, um, I have sometimes seen these moving lights, and they seem to be intelligent, uh, moving lights that that uh, uh, float around or travel around above the ground and uh, I've even seen them plop into the ground and disappear. So um, what's going on? Is that a shape-shifted form? Is it an entity that uh, takes a shadow form or a light form, uh, whatever form it wants, uh, to mess around with people? Uh, that's a trickster explanation that, that a lot of people have considered in these cases. There have been some other uh, theories, or uh, I guess you would have to call them possible explanations rather than theories, that these are surveillance devices and they're artificial intelligence being Mm. operated by some other uh, presence that we don't see. And it's, uh, you know, sort of like a spy plane or a drone, you know, going around gathering information. Right, right. I've also heard uh, another plausible, a more prosaic explanation, and that this is, uh, in some cases, it could be explained by something called ball lightning. Yes. And uh, marsh gas is another. Um, but um, there are cases where those conditions just were not present. And um, so I think um, those are natural explanations that can apply in some cases. But um, 
not like the skeptics would hope, uh, a one-size-fits-all. Now, in cases where I've uh, had uh, what I would call horribly afflicted people, uh, individuals who seem to be attached by something that uh, creates a tremendous amount of unpleasant phenomena in the home and follows them around wherever they go, I've had uh, descriptions where uh, these orbs will come through the walls at night and people feel that they're being watched, that it is like some sort of surveillance thing. Hmm. What would these things be? I mean, if they are, in fact, uh, spirits and they are taking the form of an orb, and perhaps that's because it's a fairly easy uh, form to take, um, would they be made out of something like ectoplasm, do you suspect? Um, it's a good question, Richard, and I don't know um, whether or it might be just some sort of energy which has a radiance to it that we see as uh, as a ball of light. Um, people have described them as being semi-transparent. Um, I had one case where um, the woman said that uh, a basketball-sized orb would come into her bedroom at night, it would come through a wall and hover over the bed, and she could see things moving in it, like gears. She said it's just like gears moving. And then it would drift off and go out through another wall. Uh, And so uh, we don't really know what they're made out of. Hmm. That's that's a new one on me, gears. That does sound like some sort of a drone or uh, surveillance device. Also... uh, um, any connection between the appearance of these orbs and uh, uh, the alien abduction phenomena? Yes, there is. Many abductees talk about orbs in their home. There are some cases of people saying they've been healed by orbs, that orbs have come into their body and, and healed something, it's, and they feel that it's some sort of light directed by spirit or by the aliens, uh, whatever their scenario is. So uh, here again, we have a group of experiencers. They have ongoing problems with some sort of entity or spirit interference, and uh, orbs seem to be very prevalent there. All right. We are out of time. time. Uh, We will talk again next month. Always a pleasure. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. That's it for us. My thanks to uh, Ian Robertson back next week with a brand new program. It'll be our Easter special on the Shroud of Turin. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.